to the Grumpy Economist podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, and the Grumpy Economist is John Cochran, the Rosemary and Jack Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution and the proprietor of the Grumpy Economist blog. And uh, John, I'm going to pick up today on a thread that was in a lot of our conversations about COVID earlier in the year, but that we've never done an entire show about. And that's the future of American cities, especially relevant given the beating some of them have taken in light of COVID. And so let me start with some verite. I am recording this from my office in lower Manhattan, which, as I said to you after we finished our show last week, is virtually deserted. I ride on my train over here from the other side of the river in New Jersey, which used to be standing room only. Uh, and even that doesn't adequately convey the claustrophobia of that experience. And now there may be five people. I come to this co-working space in New York on a, a floor that used to house a few hundred people. There may be half a dozen, half of whom are in the employee of the building itself. And this is in a place that now, having gone through hell with COVID earlier in the year, is pretty safe in terms of the disease. And perhaps some of the vacancy can be explained through this notion that you'll see sometimes in the press, especially as regards New York, but it applies to other cities too, which is, well, in light of everything that's happened, did we really need it? If, if you can do most of your work from Long Island or Westchester or Connecticut, insert the name of the suburbs in your region here, why bother? Kind of a hassle anyway. So to the question, why do we need big cities? An economist says what? <laughs> uh, many things. Let me add to your preface. Um, usually what we've been doing in the past here is I write a blog post and then, you know, you and I expand on it a little bit. Uh, I've been, kind of been muddling over this question, what's the future of cities post-pandemic, post-riots, and so forth. Uh, and I want to write about it, so um, hopefully you and I can talk about it and all the beautiful ideas will come out clearly. So we're, we're going to talk in advance of writing this uh, this week, which I, I hope is a good, good way to do things. And yeah, so one thought that sparks, um, uh, I, I, am, I end up being fairly depressed about the future of some of our big cities, New York and San Francisco. But there is this common thread um, that, that people are talking about, oh, now you can just Zoom from home, everybody will go live in the suburbs in their vacation houses or whatever, and technology means we won't need cities anymore, so the cities will empty out. Uh, I think the cities are in danger of emptying out, but not. I think that is quite overstated. Uh, cities have a way of coming back, let's remember. Um, cities came back from the 1918 flu. Cities came back from the 1350 Black Plague. Uh, cities have come back from every pandemic in the past when people left. People used to leave every summer uh, because of the uh, disease toll and came back in the fall. Cities have come back from, oh, you know, bombing raids. Uh, we pretty much flattened all of Germany and Japan, uh, and they came back, well, because they had a reason to come back. So will, will the reason to come back uh, disappear, and will the the reason for the reason to go, sorry about that, will, will the, the uh, logic behind that be that we can all Zoom? I think this is overstated as well. Um, it's 1860. The telegraph has been invented. We don't need to be in cities anymore. We can just telegraph each other. It's 1910. The telephone is invented. Why should I bother living in the city? I'll just call you whenever I need to talk to you. Um, 
there is something about the informal face-to-face -face interactions, which is at the core of what happens in cities and makes them so uh, productive, that I don't think Zoom has completely overcome. Uh, in the in the first tech era, quite a few tech companies experimented with people working at home. I remember Yahoo in particular had a work-at-home policy, and at one point they just said, eh, everybody show up back in the office again. Uh, it's very hard to keep track of salaried employees and whether they're goofing off or not <laughs> when they are at home trying to take care of their kids, uh, do their laundry, um, uh, mow the lawn, and also work at the same time. It, traditionally, homework has been piecework. Uh, you can work at home when you can measure what people do, and you know people used to make uh, clothes at home and then sell clothes by the piece. Uh, whereas salaried work, work in teams has tended to be in offices just because it's very hard to monitor. It's very hard to form the team. Uh, our work involves lots of uh, exchange of personal favors, which for 200,000 years has been a face-to-face -face sort of thing in the way humans do things. And cities are really, the, the economics of cities, they, they call them agglomerations or positive externalities, which I think we'll talk about more, but it, it has to do with informal face-to-face -face interactions, running into people, ideas bouncing off each other that you didn't think would happen. And part of this thought came to me in our last Goodfellas uh, Zoom call. Uh, Goodfellas is, is the other uh, thing we do uh, for those listeners who don't know about it, uh, where Neil Ferguson, HR McMaster, and I, uh, guided by Bill Whalen, talk to each other. And it's, it's pitched as three Hoover fellows around the water cooler and our, our discussion. And it occurred to me while we were taping it that it's been fun for that. I bounced ideas off of HR Neil and occasionally Victor Hansen that we wouldn't otherwise. But absent Goodfellas, it wouldn't be happening. I've never talked uh, since the uh, pandemic started to any of them, whereas I did, in fact, used to run into them at the water cooler uh, and many other fellows. So I don't think, um, I, I think we will gravitate back to cities uh, because of that, the, the importance of informal interactions, as well as other things. So cities are, there's, there's, there's increasing returns is another thing people talk about. Um, you know, there's one opera house and lots of people need to go see it. Uh, and so you need a density of people to make that work. So we'll, we'll get back to more of these issues because you asked about the Zoom. Uh, I think the big rounding up a too long answer, I think it's overstated that Zoom means we can take over all of the functions of business, society, and culture of cities and do them remotely via Zoom. So for that reason, I think cities will rebuild um, the way they did in the past. On the issue of cities coming back, we have examples of cities that fall on hard times and do bounce back. And we have examples of cities that don't, that just kind of limp along. So just two case studies here from the Northeast. In New York City, there's this term that you will hear sometimes, the bad old days. And that this is a reference to the New York of the, the 1980s and the early 1990s. You had almost 50% of people telling pollsters they wanted to move out of the city. Rampant crime and drugs and disorder and filth. And while there are fears of backsliding now, it's pretty widely acknowledged, although people still debate the causes, that New York City really turned itself around, cleaned up the streets, got tough on crime, lots of new economic development. Then as a counterpoint, I will offer you the Buffalo History Museum in Buffalo, New York. I, I was there late last year, and there is a chart 
hanging on a wall in the basement that shows the city's population every 10 years. And it peaks, I went back and looked at the photograph, it peaks at a little over 580,000 in 1950. And it's been a slide ever since. It showed about 261,000 in 2010. So obviously every city has its own uh, peculiarities, but are there general principles we can identify about which cities bounce back, why they do and why they fail to? Yeah, um, so I think there's two kinds of cities that are worth uh, distinguishing. One is the factory town. I, I went to Lowell, Massachusetts a while ago to see their uh, their museum of, of uh, uh, decay. It used to be a, a textile factory town, and then the textile factories moved, and that was the end of that. So, And this is often the popular conception. There is one industry, one factory, and the people who live to work in there. That's not what really cities are about, especially cities like New York and San Francisco and so forth. Uh, cities uh, are, are there because of, the, I'm there because you're there, and you're there because I'm there. <laughs> And uh, industries where there are many uh, innovative companies and skilled workers who jump back and forth between those companies and seed each other with ideas. Um, so I, I think Detroit is a good uh, example. Detroit in 1920 was like the San Francisco Bay Area in 1990. It's where the exciting thing uh cars was happening. And it wasn't just one company. It was all the little parts suppliers and companies starting and, and, and ending and, and skilled engineers jumping back and forth and ideas percolating around. That's what the Bay Area was uh, until recently. Uh, you just had to be here to get this stuff done. And um, you could you could be here despite huge government dysfunction. So, um, the house prices here are astronomical because they won't let uh, people build anything. The building regulations are ridiculous. The taxes are very high. But uh, when you in the in the startup era, if you move from Ohio to San Francisco, you could be five or ten times more productive. Your time would produce five or ten times more dollars here than anywhere else because everybody, all the other people you needed to make that happen were here. The venture capitalists were here. The other engineers were here. The other companies were here. The free float of ideas were here. Uh, so that's how cities grow. Um, now, how do cities decline? Uh, Detroit is an example. Buff Buffalo, I don't know the history of it so much, whether it's a, uh, whether it's a uh, Lowell, Massachusetts or a Detroit. But you need... Uh, you need sort of basic civic infrastructure. So a uh, crime is very high on the list. So if there's just random crime, you can't run businesses. People don't want to live there uh, and, and people move out. Uh, picking up the trash, New York just announced they're cutting the trash. What was it, a billion dollars they're going to cut out of the trash collection budget? That was a, certainly a part of New York in the 1970s uh, when it looked like a Batman movie. Um, uh, the infrastructure, you know, the ability to get building permits, uh, you know, that it's not too corrupt, or if it's corrupt, like Chicago used to be corrupt, that it's um, efficiently corrupt. You can pay one bribe and get things done. Uh, the, the, great, the great frustration of trying to get building permits in Palo Alto is that you can't pay a bribe. <laughs> so, so you've got to sit there and wait for five years. You know, Chicago, just uh, somehow an envelope full of cash goes somewhere and the building permit comes. Uh, so, uh, and, and I think the spiral facing uh, the cities like San Francisco and New York right now is, is um, 
like the spiral that hit Detroit, uh, people are moving out in droves. Now, will they come back? Um, if the so the people move out and the tax base moves out and the businesses move out, uh, now the cities which were already bankrupt, uh, spending money. San Francisco spends three hundred thousand dollars a year on homeless per homeless person. Um, so they spend money on on things that don't really help, uh, and they have big pension obligations. The tax base leaves, uh, and what do they do? Uh, they cut police um, police education, so the schools become a disaster. You know, pe people in San Francisco, the productive people are pretty much putting their kids in private school already, so that adds to the cost. The schools are a disaster. The schools create a, uh, a horrible situation for the lower income people who live there, who then uh, have little else to do but crime because the businesses have left. Um, and you're in a downward spiral, uh, and now you don't have the money to provide those basic services that allow the agglomeration to happen. Uh, and and uh, there's sort of a rent-seeking class, uh, sort of like the city of Detroit, which lives on the, the high taxes and, and can't seem to get itself together to uh, face the reform. But even if they did, then you're back to, you know, there's lots of well-run towns all over the country that wanted to attract the next Silicon Valley and get that agglomeration going. It's very hard to do once it's left because I go there because you're there and you go there because I'm there. I'm there and the restaurants are there because there's a lot of people who uh, like to spend money and restaurants are there. But the people who like to spend the money in restaurants are only there because the restaurants and bars and cultural uh, things are there. Um, and, and uh, you know, one venture capitalist is only there because all the other venture capitalists are there and the, uh, the businesses, the startup businesses are there. Um, it, it helps to have a core like Stanford, some, some spark that gets this whole thing going. But even there, it, you know, the government and uh, our local government is trying hard to constrain Stanford, whereas every other local government is trying to get something like Stanford going where they are. Uh, so I, that's where I see the danger is... Um, this this delicate, wonderful agglomeration that allows people to be so productive here that they can put up with the ridiculous house prices, the high taxes, the bad regulation, and so forth. Once that moves away, they, they can move to Austin, Texas. They can move to Reno, Nevada. They can move to Denver. They can move to Route 128 in Boston. Um, uh, I think they will need still to be physically located near each other. I think cities will still be there. Uh, personal interaction once the uh, COVID passes, like it always has in the past, will still be important. But it doesn't have to be in San Francisco and New York. And once that golden goose of, uh, of, of interactions is gone, boy, building it up is really hard. Well, let's talk for a moment about this other contingent of cities, the ones that are trying to attract the golden goose. Because one of the things that you've seen a lot in recent years this has been a hallmark of a lot of the new growth in the South. This was everywhere in the pursuit a couple of years ago of the new Amazon headquarters are these tax incentive packages where cities, sometimes in tandem with states, put together these bespoke deals for certain companies, usually ones that are promising a, a headline generating number of jobs. And the appeal of this to a politician is pretty obvious, right? You get you get a news cycle out of fighting for jobs in your city. You maybe get a news cycle out of a groundbreaking ceremony. 
you get a new cycle out of each wave of hiring. So I get why this entices an elected official. To what degree does it entice a free market economist? Zero, negative, <laughs> horrible idea. <laughs> uh, you know, it's it, in the growth and decay cycle, uh, where we are now is, is tech uh, in, uh, in uh, the Silicon Valley area, First was, uh, this is the place where it's exciting to start companies. Then it was, uh, we start companies here, we develop new ideas here, but the production side moves out as fast as humanly possible. Once you're not hiring engineers who stay here for you know a couple of years and then move on, once you're hiring sort of career people and the people who do the HR and people who do the compliance and people who fill out the forms, those people, the tech companies move them out as fast as humanly possible. And now the tech companies are sort of big, gargant, you know, they're like GM in the 1950s. They don't need this big innovation thing. They buy their innovation now from China. You know, TikTok is the new software right. developer. So, so they move out, attracting them to a place with big tax disincentives, tax incentives. It's the model of uh, we'll have one big factory that brings in its technology and hires local people. You do the numbers on these, the, the cost and tax incentive per job is usually astronomical. The someone's got to pay the taxes because someone's got to pay the cops and the firefighters and the garbage people and the, and the teachers, please. Uh, and so what it ends up being is very high taxes on the existing, usually small, usually not con well-connected business. So if you're going to give Amazon a tax break to move a headquarters there uh, in order to, you know, uh, you know, $500,000, I'm making that number up, but that's typical per job. Uh, then uh, what you're doing is you're taxing your restaurants, your hot dog stands, your bars, your small startups. Uh, you know, small startups are, are actually an enormous amount of employment. Uh, your uh, housing, everybody else has to pay higher taxes to make up for this tax deal. And the loss of business among those small, less politically uh, visible uh, uh, parts is, is usually and also more innovative, more vi vital, more, uh, you know, Amazon puts one factory there and it, you know, it sits there forever. This, that's not vitality. That's not innovation. So um, you lose, uh, you lose the startup culture to the, and, and the, uh, the, the, the new business culture. So it's, it's a huge negative for every, anyone except the politician. It's interesting in New York though, that the, that uh, left-wing politics are now such that uh, they, uh, they got rid of Amazon. Right. <laughs> it didn't work. <laughs> so I guess jobs all flow from the federal government now, not from uh, not from even Amazon attracting Amazon with tax deals. And that get me going on sports stadium subsidies someday. <laughs> Let me ask you about uh, one of the sources of a lot of tension in cities in recent years. Although this kind of seems like a high class problem in the current atmosphere, but people have concerns about gentrification. And it's gotten to the point where even the use of that word often implies a, a pejorative connotation. And if you were to hear a, a critic tell this story, they'd say this is the triumph of pure materialism over the, the spirit of a community. So gentrification is this practice in which slightly more affluent people start moving into and usually rehabilitating a more downscale neighborhood. And once that reaches a critical mass, the consequences are predictable. The property values and the rents go up. The people who lived there before, especially if they were renters, can get pushed out. The story is often told with a racial component that it's whites who come in and push out minorities. And this has become an anathema amongst a certain stripe 
of urban dwellers. How justified do you think the agita over gentrification is? Well, I think uh, we're about to have a big experiment. And all of those people who are anti-gentrification all these years are going to get their wish. Uh, and all the rich white people are going to pack up the Prius and they're going to move to Austin, Texas <laughs> or Denver or somewhere else. And then the property values are going to fall calamitously. The rents will fall calamitously. The tax base will fall calamitously. And the evil scourge of gentrification will be ended. And we'll see how we like living in sort of what the south side of Chicago looked like when I grew up. Uh, to be more, more, uh, let's be a little more economics about it. Um, one of the functions of cities in their dying era is to provide cheap housing. Uh, housing is pretty expensive to build, especially if you build it up to current zoning codes. Uh, it, it, this has shown up in, uh, so the city of San Jose, several of the cities around here have decided to build new housing for homeless people. And, and we discover them uh, it costing $500,000 to build uh, essentially a storage shed for homeless people to live in. New construction is very expensive. So where do people of uh, limited means live? They live in houses that were built a long time ago that sell for much less than the uh, cost of building new construction. Uh, and as it gently decays, it provides housing for people who don't need to be right in that agglomeration uh, for whatever it is they, they do in life. And that's, that's the way of the world. I mean, the way we provide low-income housing in this country is not to build new houses. Uh, we, we build high-income housing and then let it depreciate a while and the high-income people move on and, and there's a lot of housing for people, for example, people who get a check from the government who can live pretty much anywhere. I, I don't want to sound heartless about it, but that's that's the way it is. That's And there's this big stock of housing that um, is would otherwise go unused when the uh, gentrifiers move on. Uh, to call it, there's this word community which exists on the left, which I, I think we ought to pay more attention to when we use it. People who um, live within 50 miles of each other, or sometimes people who just live in the whole country who happen to share the same skin color or happen to share the same income level uh, are not in my book a community. Uh, and many of these areas are dysfunctional as far as their uh, civic public life. A community has, has churches, it has interactions, it has families that know each other. It, it has people who know their politicians. It has, uh, many of these places are not communities in that sense. So um, uh, there's an ebb and flow of, of life that people move in. It used to be people moving in, cleaning up apartments and build and starting new restaurants was and, and curing the food desert was exactly what we liked. Uh, a hard part of being poor in America is um, you move occasionally to where things are cheaper. Uh, I don't think any of the inter... I wish that were not the case. I wish nobody were poor. Uh, but I don't think uh, stopping rich people from cleaning up neighborhoods is a solution to that problem. And uh, as you see by the places that stay relentlessly poor. I'm, I'm going on here because I'm, I'm trying to walk a tightrope of sounding like the heartless conservative, but there are realities <laughs> that we have to face about uh, about how things work. Well, my final question for you is on this issue of, of dying cities. I mean, as, as we both know, this is sort of a time of ideological tumult on the right. And, and one of the flashpoints that has emerged from that 
is the issue of how much value should be placed on places qua places. So a time was a lot of free market people said, if a town is down on its luck, and down on its luck in a fashion that suggests it's not coming back. So uh, let's use Youngstown, Ohio as a stand-in for this, because it's the one that every journalist in America <laughs> seems to use. The, the free market response was, you can provide assistance to the people, but you don't necessarily want to provide assistance to the place, because you don't want to impede the kinds of market signals that are telling people, move somewhere else, go to where the opportunities are. But in recent years, you've seen a number of conservatives, some of them predictably from the populist wing, but even a guy like our friend Ed Glazer at Harvard, who is in many ways sort of the dean of the free market urbanists, say, you know what, maybe, maybe we've got to rethink this. Maybe the damage to a community is bigger than the sum of the damage to the members of that community, and maybe we have to start targeting relief to the places themselves. What's your view on that? Yeah, that's a, a very interesting uh, debate. Uh, I'll have views on both sides of that. You know, a lot of the places in America, um, if we were to resettle the country, wouldn't exist anymore. Right. Uh, right. I, 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 um, I looked up Rockford, Illinois for a while ago for some reason. Why is Rockford, Illinois a city? Well, because there is a falls there that in 18-something or other was a really good place to put in a water mill. But, you know, if we were to repopulate the country, that that would just be farmland right, right now. Most of the East Coast, in fact, the East Coast cities are located at the fall line, the place where it's the highest navigable point on a river and also the point where there's a falls where you can run uh, mills. So it's natural to bring stuff in on wagons and transport it to boats and also to run uh, water-powered stuff. Again, no, no reason today why you would build a city there, which is part of my agglomeration story. You, you need a spark, and then uh, people, if it's a well-run city, people will stay there even when the reason for its being has disappeared. I stay there because you stay there, and you stay there because I stay there, and we built a really good university that, that educates our children well, and, uh, and uh, we attract new businesses. And next thing you know, in a place that was designed because that's where you took stuff off of sailing ships and put it on wagons, we're developing software. <laughs> uh, so cities can keep going uh, that way. Now, to your question about uh, places, um, I do, in, in there is a, a, I think it's important for governments to compete. One thing that, sto that stops governments from this uh, spi downward spiral is that the people leave. And in some sense, what other force is there going to be to force governments to reform? So if, if, the, if the policy to helping places is uh, simply to pour money into dysfunctional local governments, I think that just keeps things uh, going the way they are. Um, Americans used to move a lot more, and there's some impediments to their moving. A lot of it is social programs that are tied to already tied to place rather than to people. Um, if, you know, if you figured out your local social programs, it's very hard to pick up and move when the factory uh, when the factory moves. So um, I think we're already doing more place-based stuff than we need to. I think we need to figure out how else are we going to have a force for reform and good governance and local government. And, and uh, let me point to the examples of floods and fires as examples of place-based subsidies that are disastrous. Uh, the, uh, every time a, you know, a place floods, 
what does the government do? It runs in with disaster insurance and uh, pays people to rebuild in the floodplain, sometimes four and five times. Hilarious, you know, if you think climate change is raising the sea level, what in the world are we doing rebuilding New Orleans every time it floods? Uh, yet, uh, yet, and similarly, the zoning in California encourages people to live on this uh, forest uh, interface where the houses burn and then rebuild where the houses burn. So, uh, while it kind of sounds nice, let's bring back West Virginia, government efforts to bring things back through floods of money. I, I would like to see a success story uh, before uh, saying this is a great idea. You've been listening to the Grumpy Economist podcast with John Cochran. You can read the Grumpy Economist blog at johnhcochran.blogspot.com. And if you enjoy the show, please rate it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. For John Cochran, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org.